boy, that was challenging. There was really no field yet at that point. Uh, at Newark, Rutgers University at Newark had a special laboratory headed by Daniel McLaren, and that was kind of a major focal area for the field. And there were partnerships with the Museum of Natural History in New York City with Ethel Toback. Uh, but I was very fortunate that at the New Brunswick campus near where I lived, I could ride my bike there. Uh, there was a new professor just starting his lab and Ronald Barfield, and he agreed to take me on. And he was very kind uh, in helping me work around having small kiddos at home. And I was the only person doing something among my women friends in the neighborhood. They were all home all the time. So the childcare was easy. My, I could swap with them for daycare or play groups. And my then husband, was a professor, so he so it all worked out as much easier than for current women today, where it's I think really challenging, especially for veterinary clinicians with such extensive obligate requirements on their time. Very hard, but it was possible then. Yes, and I look forward to hearing more about you know your blog on women in science later in the podcast. Perhaps, can you talk to us a little bit about your PhD? What exactly did you study and what well, are some of these springs from? I entered, I entered Ron Barfield's lab. He had a group of people. Uh, I was the only kind of re-entry person. And uh, fortunately, a couple of my professors at Berkeley still remembered me. So they wrote me some good letters is how I got in. But it was a reproductive behavior laboratory working with rats. And I became very interested in exploring what kind of vocalizations these rats might be making, the ultrasonic vocalizations. And in fact, then that led to my first published paper, which was in science on the ultrasonic post-ejaculatory call of the male rat, uh, a 22 kilohertz call. So it was pursuing that mystery of what was going on with the rats, because we could tell there was more than we could see. Uh, we went to Rockefeller University and talked with Donald Griffin there. And Donald, Don Griffin loaned us, a, on a long-term loan, a bat detector. So we were able to get the data on what the rats were actually doing. And we were able to hear all their ultrasonic vocalizations. So, it was just so exciting, the findings. And that's really a characteristic of research is that you're always finding something new and it's so thrilling. And it's always the thing of the moment, the new thing you're doing right now that is most exciting, of course. Absolutely. And being a big fan of Donald Griffin's books, I'm so excited to hear this that you actually met him and, and collaborated with him. Can we, before we move to other topics, can you tell us more about how you worked with him and some of the collaborations well, you had? He was just very supportive. He was a, a wonderful person. And he had us come over to Rockefeller and give a small seminar. Uh, he wasn't a collaborator, but he was supportive of people learning new things about animals. And he had a belief that they were doing more than we understood, of course. So bless his heart that he was so generous with us. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. So after your PhD, did you stay at the same university or how did you branch out into some of your- Well, then I was able to get a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania at the Monell Chemical Census Center for Taste and Smell. In those days, it was part of UPenn. Now it's a standalone institution. But uh, I went there as a postdoc. I did work with mostly with pine voles and meadow voles. And um, I was there for five years. So I became a member of the staff there. Uh, that was wonderful. It was a long commute, a two hour commute each way, riding the train. Uh, so I could work on the, the Amtrak. And following that, I went to American Cyanamid, uh, which was a, a business that was involved in the household products division in creating new 
product. So it's kind of blue sky research. Uh, I was there for a couple of years and writing was really an important piece of what I did because writing is an unusual skill that most people don't have. And if they find out you have it, they bring you in to do all kinds of you know, opportunities to employ that. Uh, so that was another thing we developed a new insect a poison called combat, uh, which was uh, had a, a, attracted ants and made a big impact in the market. But so I had a little bit of experience with industry before I left New Jersey. So seeing before we move on, can you uh, explain what blue sky research is for those of us who are not familiar with that term? Oh, blue sky means you really have kind of an open book. You can think about what might be a good product or what you might do. You don't have marching orders that it has to be this certain specified thing. Uh, industry is very different because than academe because it's such a huge big, I feel like it's a huge big tanker with so many resources that sort of moves slowly inches along uh, before it decides which way to steer itself. And it was kind of a unique opportunity that our group was able to just uh, think of what we wanted to do and what we might, where we might go. It wasn't that we were given marching orders to go down a certain track. Excellent. Yeah, moving to California. Uh, in 1982, Ben and I had been talking about how we would get together. Uh, he actually considered whether to apply for a pharmaceutical position on the Eastern seaboard. Uh, but then he said, well, maybe you would come to Davis and they would decide to hire you as director of a new center on human animal interactions. And that was such a kind of a pipe dream concept. I can't tell you what a sh kind of shocking impossibility that was at that time, because there was no field. There was just beginning to be uh, one, there were some back-to-back -back conferences, one in Minneapolis and one in California around that time. So the field was just beginning to be launched, but he put that idea out there into the atmosphere. And I think somehow it, it played a role in what happened because I arrived in fall of 82, and within a month or two, he's walking down the hallway in Herring Hall, the vet school, and the associate dean said, oh, Ben, we have a donor that wants to do something for human-animal interactions. And this was so preposterous that he ended up giving us some launch money to look into establishing a center uh, and he, he sort of kept us going for a few years, plus we were able to get some pet food support. So we were off and running uh, to do more about human-animal interactions. That's excellent. That's just a wonderful story. Can you tell us more about, you know, we hear human-animal interactions, human-animal relationships, we hear bonds. What, what is this field of animal human-animal interactions and which animals... Um, do we usually mean? Well, in those days, <clears throat> the advocate, the, the person, the peripatetic traveler who was traveling the world and telling everyone about this field was Leo Bustead, the dean at Washington State University. And he, he would tell stories about people in nursing homes, about equine-assisted therapy, uh, he would really touch people's hearts with the importance of animals and how, especially for vulnerable people, <clears throat> how important those relationships were. So he was creating this sort of worldwide field and eliciting funding support from some of the pet food industry uh, with Hills and then later Waltham. So he created positions really, professional positions for a whole uh, array of us. So, but what he was talking about would be like dogs and cats. And the term that he used was the human animal bond. 
Uh, I think that is a prejudicial term. And so we've sort of mostly moved away from that. Some It's still used here and there, but we use more human-animal interactions to acknowledge that there's both positive and negative aspects of it. It's not always entirely positive, for sure. Uh, but but there, there got to be some momentum. Uh, there were these two conferences. And I edited a book coming out of those two conferences. I was the third editor with R.K. Anderson and my husband, Ben. So we were, and my work right away started focusing particularly on the social aspects of companion animals and how they change our social relationships with people. And that was especially easy to demonstrate with people who have disabilities who often otherwise would experience a stigma or be avoided uh, or other people would be uncomfortable with them. And then also at that time, veterinarians were very timid about an, uh, announcing or revealing that animals died in their practices. And anyone who grieved for their animal was perceived as being extreme or really over the top. So there was no acknowledgement at that time that it was a normal thing for people to grieve when an animal died. So we right away started working on collaborating with the Sacramento Valley Veterinary Medical Association. And we partnered with them to co-sponsor a pet loss support group that met twice a month and was led by a clinical psychologist. So anyone could come to this group. It was free uh, and was modeled on a group that Betty Carmack was holding. I think she was doing one of the first groups and she was doing it at the San Francisco SPCA. So we worked with her and then started offering this group and almost no one came to the group. But what happened was there was so much media coverage of this pet loss support group. It was in the newspapers all the time. And people were comforted to know that there was such a group. They were happy to know that for anyone who was grieving, there was something available. And so the main impact for the first couple of years was simply announcing to the world that there was such a group that could provide some comfort for people who sought that comfort. And we learned sort of the profile of people who had extreme grief. Uh, for example, sometimes it would be an animal that was a last link with a family member who had died earlier, or a, a couple had lost their son, but this dog was, had been the dog of the son. So that would be an extreme situation. Or maybe the dog or the cat had disappeared and the people knew, had no idea what had happened with the animal. So, so we started getting some ideas of some of the extreme situations that led to, to particular grief. But with all the media coverage, within a couple of years, it was we were getting calls and letters from all over the country. And then working with Bonnie Mader, uh, it was became an opportunity to offer a pet loss support hotline, training veterinary students to answer these calls, which was wonderful experience for the vet students, but also announced nationwide that losing an animal is really a significant loss and merits concern. And it was much later when people started talking about the impact on the veterinarians of conducting these euthanasias and support started being provided for them. But there was someone in the East Bay, a veterinarian named Cecilia Soares. Very early, she started offering support groups for veterinarians. And what I'll also mention is we created a really attractive brochure on the pet loss support group. And we sent these out to all the veterinarians that were in the association, but none of them would put the brochures out in their practice. They didn't want anyone to know that patients were dying in their clinic. 
and they thought they could tell which people would benefit from the group. They didn't understand that people don't really reveal how they're feeling when they're in the vet clinic. So it took about two years before we were able to get a few people and even our own hospital to start making those brochures visible in the office. Yes, yes, what a story. I think it's so, yeah, in a way understandable somewhere because of course we are all kind of worried about, oh dear, are they thinking our services are not good enough or are we not caring for the patients well enough? And at the same time, it's it's sad and it's, and it's hard, but it's completely understandable, right? That people are not necessarily wanting to show how they feel or feel in public and they feel more comfortable maybe taking the brochure or not even, like you say, being aware that these options are available to them, uh, whether it's a hotline or more in person and, you know, all kinds of pet services that there are today. So those are wonderful. And, and I think you illustrate so well also how it's really something that takes a lot of time. We need to have lots of patience and, you know, have different avenues to support, whether it's the organizations or, or the individuals um, and to have that patience that those things can take hold and, and create the space for it. Yeah, but, you know, it's hard to imagine what thinking was like at that time, like in the mid eighties. But I have to say that the profession moved very quickly and really did a major uptake on, on this area. And pretty soon in the late nineties, you could go to a veterinary conference and you would see all kinds of literature and booths dealing with pet loss and what veterinarians could do to acknowledge that. So yeah. it, it was a change that happened relatively quickly. Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I'm really delighted that you and I are working on you know, topics of this kind for the zoo community together also with Dr. Sarah Chapman and other colleagues where, you know, we talk about, we have a book coming out where you're one of the co-authors on grief and, you know, letting go of animals that we care for so deeply and making this topic a lot more, you know, visible and also open for discussion for animal care staff, as well as veterinarians and anybody else really who is involved, educators and others that are seeing the animals and caring for the animals in zoos and aquariums and other wildlife places. So really. Yeah, for sure. The zoo community is the most left behind. And we've talked about it's the smallest community. There are just hardly any veterinarians in it. It's less than it's less than 1% of people. Yeah. So they don't have a cohesive mass and they don't have an easy way to share their experiences or distribute resources. So we are starting finally to see uh, some greater spread of information in the zoo community. Yes, absolutely. For veterinarians and also other animal care professionals, as well as educators and you know, and it's wonderful to see also how many more stories are available of people, you know, sharing the losses of the animals they held dear or organizations, sometimes when they know animals are very old or very ill and, and have to be euthanized because they don't have a good quality of life anymore, that they make it known to the public, to the people who know these animals for a long time. And sometimes they can come and say goodbye to these animals uh, before the animals have to be euthanized. So I think there's more and more openness and transparency, and that's just wonderful on so many different levels. So yeah, thank you for paving the road so, so long ago. And, and again, also the importance of looking at different disciplines and different fields and in how that can help us move forward in other fields where these services or these avenues are not yet so much explored. I just want to mention the lab animal setting because the pioneer in that area was Joe Spinelli at UCSF. And even in the 1970s, he was heading the huge lab animal facility. And he found that so many of his employees were just extremely stressed uh, from killing animals. So he arranged for confidential psychological counseling to be provided by Betty Carmack, a nursing professor at University of San Francisco. So 
he was really the great pioneer in the lab animal setting. Uh, so again, the culture in Northern California was really getting very sensitized and was sort of a hotbed for a lot of these activities we're talking about. Absolutely. And in the 2016 seminar that you and I had together, at, uh, which was graciously hosted by the San Francisco Zoo, I was really delighted to meet him and also meet others who work, worked in like hospice and other aspects in animal care and what we can learn from that. So yes, as you say, it's really important to look at what are other fields doing and what ways can we, you know, feel also that we are not alone, we are united, we have similar, even though we have different work, we have also similar experiences in uh, animals loss and how can organizations support their staff through these very difficult uh, moments. And so when we're thinking about the human-animal interaction, you talked about uh, dogs and assistants, service dogs, and uh, also vulnerable people. Can you talk to us also a little bit about, I mean, you already mentioned briefly, you know, how this is a beautiful part of research, this kind of curiosity and, you know, behavior observations. Can you talk to us a little bit about your field work uh, and wild animals? Well, the wild animals. So um, with, there's a lot of different pieces of this. And so there's the antelope work and uh, that was the first field work. 1985, we went to Rwanda to study flame and behavior in Topi. Uh, it was a sabbatic for Ben and we went there and then we went down to Joy Adamson's house on Lake Naivasha in Kenya and saw a lot of antelope there. And we were able to get data on flame and behavior in several species of antelope. So after that six month sabbatic, uh, we kind of looked at each other and said, well, there's so much to study here. We have to keep coming back. And so we started a practice of coming for about six weeks in the summer, we are teaching could be distributed at other times of year and the veterinary school was happy for us to be gone for several weeks of field work uh, and we arranged to get volunteers to join our project which would financially support us going there uh, and we did this through the university of california research expeditions program which is kind of an earthwatch organization we did it that way for several years and then we shifted over to Wilderness Travel, a major tourism company that offered some support to research for us to do a similar thing. So we would have a group of volunteers with very strong interests that would come for a couple of weeks and we'd rent about six um, Suzuki Jeeps and they could tool off for the day in their Jeep to, to per vehicle and we would teach them on the first day what they could do for observations. So like 15 minute observations of gazelles, Grant's gazelles or Thompson's gazelles or Eland uh, or Congoni, whatever animal they were seeing and look for flamen behavior. And they come back at the end of the day, we'd have a debriefing and we'd give a sort of a brief kind of small mini lecture about animal behavior. They'd be there for one week at Naibasha and then we would go over to Maasai Mara for one week. So two different contexts. So we could churn out a huge amount of data very quickly. And every summer that's what we did. So we published lots of papers and sometimes that would turn into uh, a grant that would provide even greater amount of work. Uh, so we've shifted over to grooming behavior. Uh, and then eventually we, we went to Nepal with the project projects and then to Southern India. So that was the way we kind of quote funded the work that we did. Uh, lots of work on flame and behavior and grooming behavior two very common behaviors that no one had really studied very much. We still have in the back burner a paper that we're planning to write next year 
on giraffe, which have a particularly interesting flame and behavior. So stay tuned for that. And um, then I'll tell you next about elephants uh, and two different, we always, these are always kind of serendipitous directions that we take because it's very different than the typical field worker. The typical field worker goes to one venue and stays there for decades learning everything about a population of animals. But we were just coming in and looking at a specific behavior for a few weeks uh, and going to many different contexts. So that's kind of the marker that's different about our work. So shifting to elephants, we had two early directions. One of them pertain to their infrasounds because of my work with rodent ultrasound, you know, I was just very nosy. I wanted to know what were the elephants doing with their infrasounds that we could not hear. And uh, one of my brothers is a geophysicist and he was always tromping out in the field in Texas and Nevada doing seismic measures of the earth's vibrations. So it was kind of natural for us to be talking about what the seismic impact might be of elephant high amplitude vocalizations or just their movement with so much body weight. So that was how, and I had a PhD student, Caitlin O'Connell, and she was having similar questions for other reasons. We went down to a circus, kind of a circus uh, vacation spot for elephants. Bucky steals land in Texas. And Bucky was very kind to us to let us go down there. And Byron came in, my brother, with his many channel computer and walked out huge cables, many, many feet uh, to do measure seismic measurements. And that was his field. So that was how we documented the seismic propagation of elephant vocalizations and elephant movement and led to further studies in Itasha National Park in, in Namibia. So that was one big branch of our elephant work. Then another branch is that we, we went to, in 1990, we went to Nepal to visit our friend's study site. Dale Watt, who is the father of studies of bison, uh, was our closest friend and we followed him everywhere to every continent uh, going on trips with him. So he, he lured us to Nepal for his study of rhino. And there were tourism programs there where people would ride elephants out into the national park to look for rhino and that would be a way of seeing them. So we were riding an elephant and we see our elephant grab a branch and start switching herself. And we both looked at each other and said, whoa, we have to come back here and look at this. So that's, you know, just kind of a serendipitous observation. And that's led to us going back several times for studies in Nepal and Southern India of tool use. And then some summary papers on the brain organization of elephants. So those were a couple. And then it was later uh, that we started getting really both of us having this burning interest to look at yawning in elephants. No one had ever reported yawning. We met a zookeeper, Brian Greco, at an animal behavior society meeting. And we're talking with him at the conference and we said, Brian, you have to go back and really look for yawning because they have to be yawning, but no one's ever reported it. And in less than a week, he sent us two videos of elephant yawning. So, uh, you know, just being alert, it's like if you're not, it was Forbes that said, if you're not walking around, you won't stumble on anything. We've always been stumbling on <laughs> on serendipitous things. Uh, and that's really been the trigger 
And part of the excitement for me that I really love is just the partnership with all these people who have a similar passion and working together. And each one is bringing a different skill set. Uh, talking with Bucky Steele, the big circus guy, I mean, hearing his experiences with elephants was just so spellbinding. So the life experiences that come with this kind of work are priceless and it continues today. So just in the last month, three women that want to do graduate work have contacted me and they want to study elephant behavior for their graduate work. So they all came to Davis and we spent a full day together. Well, the energy that that generates is so phenomenal. Uh, and I can't tell you how exciting it is to think about, there's so many things about behavior that we don't know anything about. Lots of cherry picking remains. Yes, yeah. I love it. And it just vibrates out. You know, you and I can see each other, but obviously, you know, in the podcast is just uh, the sound of your voice, but it vibrates out to the energy and the collaboration and the joy of exploration and stumbling over. And that energy is so yeah. amazing. So yeah. the yawning, uh, I have to tell you the yawning story. We, we had this burning interest to, to document the yawning. And one day, uh, a few years ago, a sophomore, an undergraduate sophomore came into my office and she said, you are the fourth person, faculty person I've talked with and they've all turned me down. I need a Davis advisor to partner with me. I want to do a project in Southern Africa to look at how elephants respond to people. How do they initiate responses to people that they know or they don't know? Her name is Zoe Rossman. And she, she had already been down there and she had the connections. She wanted someone to sort of work with her on that study. And I said, yes, I'd be delighted to do that. I've done work with Mahouts. It's right up my alley. And then I said, but would you also be willing to study yawning? And she went for that. So bless her heart. She did a fabulous job. The videos were already there in the night quarters and the red lighting. Uh, so she she did it and she documented the contagious shining. She, she did two gap years to wrap up that work and prepare her grad school applications and succeeded in getting NSF pre-doc funding. So she's got great support and she's in Albuquerque and she is amazing. Like earlier this week, she posted a two minute video of her walk in Albuquerque and showed photos of video photos of 12 different porcupines that she saw on her walk. So I thought she was going to become the, the queen of coyotes because most of her starting work has been with coyotes. But now I think she's going to become the queen of urban wildlife. Yeah, so she shifted from elephants, just like Noah Pinter Wallman shifted from elephants to ants, social structure of ants. So the excitement, you can carry it wherever you go. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. So talking about, you know, human animal interactions and elephants, and you mentioned mahouts, can you talk a little bit about your work on elephants and, and their care, carers? Well, when we were in Nepal and also in Southern India, we were there purportedly to study their tool use. But of course I'm walking down to the stables every day and seeing the elephants and it was just too much of an opportunity. Uh, I was curious about what the relationship was. And both of these countries have very sophisticated naturalists that know the animals very well. They know all the birds. They lead people and help instruct them about what they're seeing. And so it was very possible for me to have a trans, work with a translator and interview all the Mahouts. And so I have a few papers about those interviews. And as you can probably realize, it's a disappearing culture. Uh, there aren't, the elephants aren't doing the logging that they used to. 
they still maybe are very important during the monsoon for crossing rivers and things like that. But uh, I wanted to know what they experienced, what they thought their elephants liked, who did they like, did they have fr special friends among other elephants and all of those kinds of questions. What was their cultural background? Uh, and so I have several papers about that. And it was really a unique opportunity, a unique window that was available to me uh, for a month when we were in Nepal. Uh, and one, the morning that I was leaving, we were going to be picked up at 5 a.m., but I woke up at 2 a.m. and I was just sobbing, racking sobs. I was so crushed that I was losing this very special opportunity window to be with these elephants every day, be with their mahouts and have some intricate understanding of all their mutual relationships. It was so such a unique experience. So it was one of my most severe grief reactions that totally blindsided me. Yes, sometimes when we get into our research or into our connections and in, into the environment, we don't necessarily realize what that does to us and the impact it has until we start to suddenly realize that we are going to lose it. And so, yeah, and, and grief is, is the word for that indeed. Yeah, yeah. This happens a lot to people when their animal, their pet dies, and sometimes they have no idea that they're going to be hit this way. Yes, yes. Even if, you know, you have also this, sometimes this sort of anticipatory grief, we already start to grieve because we know that the animal is old or ill and is going to pass away, but still, yes, absolutely. There's so many, so many nuances there. And so, you know, as we get to the end of this podcast, almost, you've really talked about, you know, the importance of curiosity and, you know, like finding all kinds of, you know, delving into all kinds and collaborations. Just recently, you sent me a beautiful picture of one of your presentations where you have the world map with all the people around the world and working on elephants and all these connections. And so, you know, you've mentioned a lot of different people, both in the past is now in the present, and a lot of them are also women. And so perhaps can you talk to us a little bit about your recent blog on women in science? Well, it is really a majority of women that, that are drawn to this work. And one of the challenges of working in this field is there has been so little funding. There's getting to be some, but not so much. But people have always, since I even since I barely started in the 80s, they just dropped out of the sky. And so most of the work that I've done has been what I would call hip pocket research with almost no funding. And, and in fact, our papers that have the highest altmetric scores, most of them had no funding, zero funding. Uh, the, for the vet school, they would say they pay my salary to work with dogs and cats and to teach about dogs and cats. Um, papers like our paper on coprophagia of dogs, uh, that's one of the highest altmetric scores and has no, no funding at all. So it, it sort of breaks the rules of how science works because it's not a mega data field. It's not complicated like genetic research, but it's very important and something people really care about. And that's why the altmetric scores can go very high. And so you had asked something about a surprising finding. I guess our most recent surprising finding is the study we did on household noises. And this study was inspired by my dog, uh, Ginny, because one day she wouldn't come when I called her. She retreated to the backyard. She went off food. She went off water. Ben was out of town and she was just acting so strange. I took her into emergency after a few days on the weekend. I was concerned about she, maybe she would get dehydrated, but she wasn't dehydrated. and. 
when the day that Ben came home, we came from the garage into the hallway to our guest suite. And just then our smoke alarm was chirping as the, it, the battery was low and she went flying in another direction. And we looked at each other. We knew then that the problem was this very loud chirping smoke alarm. So she inspired this study, a no budget study, which has you know an extremely high interest uh, of media. It's had so many press reports because people care about what's bothering and disturbing and causing welfare problems for their animals. Uh, so that was a surprising finding that it, it's really, so many people have reported this. We found so many web uh, documentations of it that we analyzed and we could see the extreme pain and distress because for dogs, these sounds are extremely loud, far more than what we experience. Their hearing acuity in the higher ranges is so much greater. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's also, you know, in a way encouraging, even though it would be great to have more funding and it would be great, you know, to have more support. And there certainly is a need for that, that also, you know, things can be done by collaborating or by using citizen science or doing things <laughs> on a on a shoestring budget and, and addressing things that are really near and dear to people's hearts, especially companion animals, but also, you know, anywhere else. Yeah, the huge resource of this field is the burning interest that people have in it. So, and that translates into many hundred thousand, so many very talented undergraduates who want to study these kinds of topics. And they have time, they have energy, extreme intellect. Uh, they're the ones driving the field. It's still, even today, is a bottom-up field. In Leo Bustead's time, it was a bottom-up field because volunteers were taking their pets into nursing homes. And that was happening all across the United States. So that's why I call it bottom-up. It's not that people at the top are funding it. So today it's still bottom up, but the, it's coming from talented undergraduates and graduate students that are generating new information and data that inform us of new things that we don't know about animal behavior and how things impact them. Absolutely. And in conclusion of this podcast, do you have a story near and dear to your heart of an animal that you would like to share before we conclude? Okay. So I would say um, maybe I'll mention our current, some of our current projects. Um, well, I'll just go through them. We have a book debt book deadline that we're uploading the chapters of the book right now. It's a dog breed book that covers 80 breeds of dogs, including their behavior profiles, but also recommendations databased on effects of neutering them at various ages. Some breeds of dogs are adversely impacted, impacted in their joint disorders or cancers. It's a minority of breeds, but it's important to know if you have one of those breeds. So, that book is going to be published uh, with an academic press imprint. Uh, and then I think we'll be moving on to a topic that is Ben's deep love, which is how animals in the wild are able to stay healthy and what those behaviors are that they use to stay healthy. Uh, and then I have two papers that I'm just wrapping up before the end of the year. I'll mention the topics of those because it shows the diversity of what we're working on. One of them is a, a paper with a veterinary student who's finishing up and graduating in June. Her name is Pornpamol Tracy Hayward. She is Thai and it's a Mahout study. She went to Thailand, interviewed Mahouts and also interviewed tiger caregivers. Uh, so she wanted to know how does the quality of their life impact their relationship with their animals. 
And that's going to be a, an interesting paper that'll be coming out soon. And the other one that is also going to be submitted this month before the year ends is with several co-authors, including Aubrey Fine and Ken Gorsica, who really has supported the AIDS community and their relationships with pets. And we did a survey of long-term survivors of AIDS to learn about their experiences with the AIDS pandemic and how that compared with their experiences in the COVID pandemic, and also what their experience was with pets. So we found some differences in having a cat versus a dog or the people who choose to have cats and those who choose to have dogs have different experiences. So it's just a vibrant field and there are so many unstudied aspects to it. And it is possible to come in and find very interesting new information with a modest budget. So there's the opportunities continue. Absolutely. It's really inspiring for me to hear about, you know, the wide variety of aspects of, that you have studied and all the collaborations. And I think, you know, if there's certainly one takeaway is to be curious and to really keep, you know, looking and listening uh, with whether it's with your animals or in your community and that there is always something uh, to learn in our relationship to animals or their behaviors. There's so much uh, to do. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. I look forward to connecting with you again on another podcast to talk more about, you know, all kinds of human animal interactions. And also uh, perhaps we can get your husband, Ben, uh, to talk about his love of, you know, animal behavior and how they stay healthy in the wild or what sort of behaviors are involved with that. That certainly sounds very interesting. And to hear more about how caretakers you know, how they feel about their animals and in which ways they care for them. That would be very fascinating too. So thanks again so much, Lynette, for coming onto the podcast. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It's always wonderful to talk with you, Sabrina. I appreciate it. Thank you so much again for a wonderful podcast, another end of a podcast here. And of course, as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a PAUSE member today. Mm -hmm.